Well, it's that time for us to dig into the Word of God this morning, and uh, last Lord's Day, I went a little over, I hope you didn't mind that, um, but uh, I couldn't possibly divide it up any other way, so we, uh, we did the long stretch. We, we won't be doing a long, long stretch this morning, though. We're hopefully going to be on track. <clears throat> Take your Bibles, anyhow, and turn to Galatians chapter 3. We are in Galatians 3, and we finished up last Sunday, verses 1 to 5, where Paul, if you remember, makes an appeal to facts about their conversion experience in order to address their waywardness. And we considered the importance of doing that ourselves with other people in the church. It's such a a great approach. In verse 6, to the end of chapter 4, or at least to the middle of chapter 4, Paul does the same thing, but this time with an appeal to Scripture. So he's not appealing to experience now, he's appealing to to Scripture. And I want to establish two important principles right up front before we even examine the text. Talk about getting practical. We're going to get practical right now. Two important principles that we need to know. We'll see this working or operating in the text itself when we get there. The first principle that I want to talk about or point out to you is this, that we should always verify the validity of our experience with Scripture. Always verify the validity of our experience with Scripture. As we move from human experience to written, objective truth, I don't want you to get the impression that the two are disjointed. No, on the contrary, they're very much connected, and here's how. What we experience in conversion, an intellectual understanding of our sin, our offense of a holy God, our condemnation, our desperate estate, our emotional response as a result, a a godly sorrow and Finally, the determination to repent and trust the work of Christ alone. That experience is exactly what Scripture said should happen in conversion. Exactly. Do you see the connection now? They're not disjointed. They're very much connected. Scripture validates the legitimacy and reliability of our conversion Experience. Now, it's important, beloved, to understand this connection because not all human experiences are factual and reliable for the Christian life. What do I mean by that? Well, on the one hand, there are experiences that are not factual. A woman flatlined on an operating table for three minutes and claimed that during that time she saw the devil in hell waiting for her. That experience changed her life. She writes a book about it, and she makes millions. But what she experienced after flatlining wasn't factual. It was in her head. On the other hand, there are experiences that are factual, but they're not reliable for the Christian life. Tim leaves an evangelistic meeting that he was invited to because, well, he was offended. He falls down a flight of stairs and breaks his leg in four places. He interprets this event as God trying to tell him something, and he becomes a very religious person from that time on. Now that's a factual experience. It really happened. You can see the results in his gait. But is it a reliable means of determining God's will? Both experiences find no support from Scripture. The devil is not in hell ruling it, waiting for anybody, 
nor do we determine God's will by signs and omens. Now, as for Christians, we are subject to experiences that may be neither factual or reliable. A believer has a disturbing dream that profoundly affects the way he lives. But is his, is his, is his experience factual? No, he dreamt it. What happened in his dream didn't happen in his life. Now, the same believer can also be in the habit of interpreting God's will for himself by interpreting his circumstances. Circumstances are factual events that we experience, but they're not reliable ways of discerning God's will. They're open to interpretation. Now, when it comes to our experiences, we Christians must weigh them against the hard principles of Scripture for their usefulness. Take our conversion experience as an example. It, it has an element of subjectivity to it, yes. After all, we experienced it. That's the subjective part. But what we experience is objective in the sense that what happened to us at conversion, as I say, is exactly what the Bible says happens in real Christian conversions. And that's why Paul used the Galatians conversion as a reliable confirmation of gospel truth that they were currently contradicting. I've heard plenty of conversion, conversion testimonies during my pastorate from churchgoers that found, um, that I found rather, were unsubstantiated by scripture. I'll give you a case in point. A man once told me, of, uh, of a definite time in his life when he got God. That's what he said. I got God. That was during the milk campaign ads, if you remember, back a few decades ago when celebrities with milky mustaches were promoting the importance of milk. Well, he got God. And he was a hardened criminal at the time with a drug-induced lifestyle. One clear night, out of desperation, he walked outside into a starlit array, uh, 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 an array of stars with, with shooting stars here and there. And he was so overwhelmed with God's creation that he knew it was time to get serious for God. And that's it. That's the testimony. Now, that experience was factual. He went outside. He looked at the stars. He felt something. No doubt. But is it a valid conversion experience? Well, let's see. No gospel, no remorse over offending a holy God, no repentance, no mention of trusting the work of Christ alone. Well, that would be a no. Now, let me round this brief word on experience off for you by saying that factual experiences that Scripture confirms and are beneficial to our work, like trials, conversions, baptisms, because they demonstrate scriptural principles working in real life, they are uh, beneficial to our uh, Christian walk. In other words, our experiences bear out what scripture says. But make no mistake, our, uh, our scripture is never subject to our experience. It's really important that we understand that one, too. It's the other way around. Scripture validates our experience. 
And what we experience in the Christian walk confirms what we know from Scripture to be true. It's imperative that we get this order right. Otherwise, we can seriously derail our faith by putting stock in experience alone, as so many Christians do. And that leaves us vulnerable to the schemes of the devil, who counterfeit miracles in the last day, remember? We should always back up our thinking, our feeling, our actions, our attitudes with Scripture. Do you know that the Bible tells us what we are to think? Paul gives a list in Philippians 4.8. In the end of that list, he commands us to think on these things. Isn't that interesting? But there's more. The Bible also tells us how to behave. Love your enemy as far as is possible for you to do so. Be at peace with all men. Do not return evil for evil. Pray for those who persecute you. Walk by the Spirit. And the Bible even tells us how to feel. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Get rid of all bitterness, rage. Rejoice and be glad in each day that the Lord has created for you. Be anxious for nothing. Blessed are those who mourn. Salvation by grace through faith in Christ was a factual, trustworthy experience of the Galatians' conversion because it was what Scripture teaches. And Paul knows, or Paul goes rather, to Scripture to confirm this, especially to the Old Testament. In fact, where else would he go? That's all they had. New Testament hadn't been written yet. So James Montgomery Boyce understood this issue with the Galatians' And that, they, that it was more than experiential. It was scriptural, too. And he says this, quote, Paul links up his Old Testament example to the Galatians' spiritual experience, showing that what they had known to be true in their own lives was also true for others and is confirmed scripturally, end quote. Paul's best and most authoritative approach with the Galatians is to take them to Scripture, and it is ours as well. That's the first principle that I don't want us to miss. If you hear nothing else this morning, make sure you understand that one. But here's a second important principle, just as important, that I want to establish right at the beginning, and it's this. We need to put our doctrine into practice. Put our doctrine into practice. By that I mean, know what you believe and live it. All right? Know what you believe and live it. We're really talking about epistemology. How I know what I know to be true, the scripture tells me. So consider God's word before you act. Hang all your decisions on a text. As Paul appealed to scripture, his appeal to scripture brings with it a rebuke to the Galatians for letting themselves be persuaded by false teachers. He's encouraging us to make sure that we practice our doctrine. We have to because false teachers are still there. They're out there. Satan's false apostles, and they are masters of persuasion. We talked about spin doctors this morning in Sunday school. Paul alludes to their, their way of words in 1 Corinthians 2.4. They are wordsmiths skilled at their craft, and another name for what they do is spin. They spin the tooth. Fake news media, for example, that politicians have weaponized 
in our country to spread their false narratives, to suit their agendas, do this. They spin. They stopped turning out accurate journalism years ago. In fact, America's so-called finest newspapers and news networks have been on a spin cycle for a few decades now, and this much, and this is much to the ignorance of many Americans who click on their TVs at the end of the day, hard-working day, and they listen to news clips indiscriminately, believing everything that they hear. Well, but why shouldn't they? Right? Why shouldn't they? They're not experts in journalism. They haven't the time to investigate a story, much less have the investigative ability to do so. So they swallow what, what's put out, naively believing that all news reporters are created equal and they remain totally unbiased in their reporting. It's a sad state of affairs in our country, but sadder still is the state of affairs of the church in America. This general naivete on the part of so many unbelievers follows them right into the faith and into the church upon their conversion. They're used to being indiscriminate. They think, I'm not an expert in exegesis. I haven't the money to buy or even the time to read theological volumes or commentaries, and I know nothing of hermeneutics or how to discover the meaning of true meaning of a Bible passage, but then again, why should I? Well, that's what pastors are for, right? I go to church to get my daily dose of the word from a man whom I believe is reliable. Beloved, if you believe I'm reliable, I appreciate that, and that's great encouragement. But none of you should ever get the idea that what we, that we spoon-feed you the word every Lord's Day morning at PRBC. Perish the thought. And anyone who comes here looking for that kind of activity will be greatly disappointed and really won't last. People who sit under the PRBC pulpit ministry are taught to think for themselves. We, sh- we show you where we get, what we get, and how we get it so that you can go home and do it yourself. The pastors and those whom God has given the gift of teaching are not to replace that important process of Bible study for you but they're to facilitate it. Yet it happens all the time. People want to be tickled, lulled, spoon-fed their weekly amount of spiritual pablum. And now that's how the church has trended over the past few decades. Bottles of warm milk and bibs for all sizes. (laughs) Truth be known, this tendency on the part of God's church to become doctrinally dull and indiscriminate, not testing the spirits, but accepting of false teachers who are winsome and smooth, has gone on since the very beginning of time, along with the consequent drifting away from orthodoxy. We can trace this trend even throughout Israel's history. They drifted more than they stayed the course, if you know their history. And the same was true of the first century churches, The Ephesians, the Colossians, the Galatians, the Corinthians, John's churches in Asia Minor, the six churches in Revelation that Jesus rebukes. It's a theme, isn't it? Tolerating false teachers, false teaching, and counterfeit living. You know, beloved, it it is a great credit to God's mighty work that the true church has even remained till now and will someday become the church triumphant. 
thank God Jesus is building the church. Christians can never take credit for that. Remember what Paul said to the Corinthians. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things that are strong and the insignificant things of the world and the despised of God that God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no human may boast before God. Yes, he is talking about us. What's also true is that when the first century churches got lazy in their God-given responsibilities and their apologetic and evangelistic skills rusty and their spiritual sensitivities numbed to the life-saving and sustaining Bible truth, they became easy targets for false teachers in their spin. The Galatians are prime examples some clever word smithies who knew just enough of Old Testament theology to be dangerous came to them and in typical satanic fashion spun the truth. Let me show you how they did this. They used scripture first of all. Of course, that's just how Satan did it with Jesus, right? They went to Genesis 17 to support their message that Gentiles must be circumcised as part of the requirement to be saved. You see, that passage confirms that Abraham was circumcised, and it teaches the principle that anyone who would be accepted into fellowship with God had to be circumcised as well. well. And it says that. Huh. Is it true? Well, there is an element of truth here, but we have to plug plug this element into its proper context. The Judaizers didn't do that. They took just this one element of truth and they spun it to support their narrative. This is why Christian spin is so dangerous. It contains elements of biblical truth. And the more biblical truth counterfeit has, the more dangerous it is. So what is the truth? Ah. Circumcision was a sign of a covenant that God made with Abraham that he would bless people from every tribe and tongue and nation through Abraham's seed. The seed, of course, was ultimately Messiah, not Isaac, who would come from the line of Abraham through Isaac. God would accomplish his salvation promise to Abraham through Messiah, bringing many Jews and Gentiles into his church. God would do this. He would give birth to his church by his own might. And by the way, this is why circumcision became a sign of the covenant promise. Every time Israelites would procreate, they were reminded of God's promise to build a people for himself by his own might, not the efforts of the Israelites. Just as he gave Isaac to Abraham and Sarah in their old age, so he will give new life to countless generations of Jews and Gentiles through Messiah. Now, having said that, the hope for Israelite males who bore the sign of God's covenant promise to Abraham as infants is that they would grow up and accept Messiah by faith and realize this promise for themselves. They would become circumcised of the heart. Of course, 
the majority of them were apostate. The message of the Old Testament then is very clear. Neither circumcision nor being a physical descendant of Abraham automatically made an Israelite a true believer. No, he had to exercise faith in the work of God's, God's promised Messiah yet to come and bear in his body then the sign of that covenant. If he didn't grow up to realize it in his life, he bore an empty sign on his body. Now, here's another supporting part of, um, of this truth that the Judaizers left out of their narrative. Abraham was not justified by his circumcision, but rather by his faith. Now, we know that because God declared him righteous when he believed God's promise of Messiah approximately 13 years, at least, before he was circumcised. Now, that's about how old Ishmael was when God promised Abraham Isaac. Now, Abraham's faith preceded the sign by 13 years. And not only that, but the gospel promise preceded everything else in God's dealing with Israel, including the giving of the law. In Romans chapter 4, verse 11, Abraham received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised that righteousness may be credited to them. In Galatians chapter 3, then, Paul obviously has in mind Genesis 15, 6, which states at this point in Abraham's life that he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Paul would go on to quote 15, Genesis 15, 6, word for word in Romans 14, where he makes the same argument. The truth, then, is this. If Abraham was justified long before he was ever circumcised, Circumcision is unnecessary for salvation. One is justified by faith in Messiah's work alone. For Abraham, his circumcision 13 years later was only the mark, not the means of his salvation. As Paul explains in Romans 2, listen to verses 28 and 29. For a person is not a Jew who is one outwardly, and true circumcision is not something visible in the flesh. Huh. On the contrary, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and of circumcision is of the heart, by the spirit, not the letter. That person praise, person's praise is not from people, but from God. So this is the way God always meant circumcision to be, a mark, not a means of salvation. Now, that's no spin. It's the truth. And you see how the Judaizers were able to present a view of salvation that was completely wrong and heretical and conveniently, by conveniently leaving out Genesis 15 and the chronological events in Abraham's life. Gentiles, the Galatians, didn't know any better. They probably hadn't heard much about Abraham until this point. In Galatians 3, Paul uses the very argument against them to prove beyond question that all who come to God by faith alone are truly spiritual descendants from, Abra uh, from Abraham. So with that, I give you the main idea of, Gal of Galatians 3, 6-9. All true spiritual descendants of Abraham 
exercise faith in the gospel as he did and thereby are justified as he was and consequently share with him God's covenant promises. It's just a wonderful, wonderful thing here we have before us in Galatians. Let's see how Paul develops this. First of all, he makes the point that all true, all true spiritual descendants of Abraham exercise faith in the gospel as he did. This is verses 6 and 7. Just as Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, therefore recognize that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. Now Paul makes an obvious comparison here between Abraham and all Christians. Abraham believed God, which means he believed the message that God told him. And we'll get to that when we look at verse 8. So on the basis of his faith, it was credited to him as righteousness. Before we go any further, we might as well ask the question, what was credited to Abraham's account? Well, righteousness. Yes, but whose righteousness? Well, last I checked, people don't have a righteousness of their own, at least not any that God would ever find acceptable, and that went for Abraham too. You might remember Paul later confirms this in Ephesians 2.8. Salvation and all of it is a gift. So Abraham's faith was the result of God's working in him. And when Abraham applied the gift of faith, God imputed his own righteousness to Abraham's account. Okay, now now comes the comparison. If Abraham believes God's message and was not made uh, but declared righteous then all those who follow Abraham's example are his spiritual descendants. Did you get that connection? All born-again believers are spiritual descendants of Abraham, the father of faith. For those of you who are more analytical-minded, and I know that there are a few of you out there, I might illustrate this connection with what's known as, in mathematics, as a transitive property. The transitive property, you know it as if A equals B, B equals C, then A equals C. If Abraham exercised faith in God's message and was saved, and Gentiles exercise faith in God's message and are saved, then Abraham is the spiritual father of Gentile believers. Okay, I I get the comparison, but why the need to make it? Well, remember Paul was refuting the Judaizers, who were telling the Gentiles that they needed to be circumcised to be accepted as part of God's people Israel, just as the father of the Jews was. Remember Genesis 17. Paul destroys that argument by showing the Galatians from Scripture that they and all Gentile believers, you and I, are the true sons of Abraham because we imitated his faith, which he exercised 13 years prior to his circumcision. Abraham may be the father of the Jews, physically speaking, but he is the spiritual father only of those who believe the gospel for salvation. Paul would go so far as to say in his letter to the Romans that not all Israel is Israel. That is, Paul says, it is not the children by physical descendant who are God's children, 
but the children of the promise are considered to be the offspring. Number two, all true spiritual descendants of Abraham are thereby justified as he first was. This is verse 8. Paul says, Now the scripture saw in advance that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and proclaim the gospel ahead of time to Abraham, saying, All the nations will be blessed through you. The opening words of verse 8 are truly remarkable. Scripture saw in advance that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. Obviously, the reference to Scripture seeing is figurative, really, for God determining. Paul understood Scripture really to be the mind of God, the very mind of God. And here he means God foreordained that Gentiles would be part of, of his people and that he would, bring, he would bring that about through Abraham. More specifically, he would proclaim the gospel to Abraham first. So Abraham would be the model for all future Gentiles. And as they believed and were saved, they became part of Abraham's heritage. F.F. Bruce explains that the heritage Abraham left is one of faith. And those who share in this heritage are presented as his sons. And as Paul says later in verse 26, you are all sons and daughters of God through faith in Christ Jesus. We might ask at this point, since God's plan to create a people for himself obviously started with Adam and the godly line after him, why does Paul go back to Abraham? Why does he only start at that point in history? Well, remember that he's refuting the Judaizers. The Judaizers believe that Abraham was the father of the Jewish nation. And they looked to their physical lineage with Abraham as verification that they were legitimate sons of God. Huh. What makes sense then that Paul would start with Abraham when attacking their gospel of law and their insistence that the Galatians be circumcised and to be legitimate sons of God. Paul therefore shows that God's ordained plan to justify the Gentiles by faith in the gospel was presented, I'm sorry, prepared by proclaiming the gospel to and saving Abraham first. Another remarkable declaration in verse 8, I think, is that God proclaimed the gospel to Abraham. Let's dwell on this a little bit because this leaves, this, this, uh, because Paul leaves this word gospel undefined here, right? All he says is that God pre- preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand. That's it. So he leaves it undefined, but it's obvious then, because he does so, that he is using it in the same way that he has used it up to this point in the book. That's a hermeneutic principle that you ought to know. If you have the same word being used all the time in a book, then most likely it means the same thing, unless at some point the author makes a change and it's obvious. Well, here it's obvious that he didn't make a change and that Paul is using gospel the same way he has up to this point, which is this, faith alone in Christ alone. That's it. No other gospel. He wants the Galatians to know that the gospel he preached to them was the very same gospel that God preached to Abraham. 
No doubt God explained the gospel in full to Abraham. Now, Abraham didn't know Jesus, the man. He knew the Messiah. And when you read about his life and the facts that the Holy Spirit has left for us, say in Hebrews 11, regarding what Abraham knew and believed, it's plain enough that Abraham anticipated Messiah. Messiah's work of redemption and resurrection, and even heaven itself. Hebrews 11 is all about Old Testament saints living by faith, right? And you cannot live by faith unless you are redeemed, right? So then, what the writer tells us in verses 8 to 10 of that chapter, that Abraham, what he did by faith, we know he did because he was first a believer, the key to this little phrase is this little phrase in verse 8 that comes at the beginning. The writer says, By faith Abraham, after he was called, obeyed. By faith he lived, etc. It was because Abraham was first called to salvation that he was able to obey. And as verse 19 says, considered God to be able even to raise someone from the dead. There are more good reasons just from our text alone that <clears throat> confirms that Abraham knew the same gospel that we do. Here are three. Three. Here are two. When Paul says in Galatians 3.8 that all nations of the earth will be blessed through Abraham, we know that for this to be the case, God would accomplish this through Abraham's seed, who is Messiah. Abraham believed that his seed through the line of Isaac was Messiah. And as Hebrews 11.13 says, even greeted that wonderful promise that he never saw fulfilled in his day from afar. Paul says this specifically in verse 14. The purpose was that the blessing of Abraham would come to the Gentiles by Christ Jesus so that we could receive the promised spirit through faith. Abraham believed that Messiah would come through his seed. Number two, Paul, Paul links the promise that was given Abraham with Christ in his redemptive work in verses 13, 14, 16, and 22, and 29 of chapter 3. William Hendrickson is right then when he says, quote, for Abraham also, therefore, the real basis of justification, pardon for sin, right standing before God, adoption as a son, was Christ's voluntary and vicarious sacrifice. For him, too, faith was the hand that laid hold of God's promise, however dimly apprehended. Abraham apprehended enough. He knew Messiah would come. We can appreciate Jesus' statement then all the more to the Pharisees in John 8:56, and even much better, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. Number three, all true spiritual descendants of Abraham, as a result, share with him in the same covenant promise. I love this one. Verse 9, so then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham the believer. This is yet another remarkable declaration that Paul makes and a fitting ending to his particular argument. Not only are the Gentiles true spiritual descendants, true sons and daughters of Abraham, they share in the blessing promised to him. The word faith in verse uh, 
in verse 9 occurs here in Greek without the article. It's not the faith, it's faith. And that suggests that, the, that Abraham and those who follow after him, you and I, have the same, have, have, have the same faith. We have exercised the same faith. And that shows that the new covenant is really the fullest expression of the Abrahamic covenant. What then are the blessings that Abraham received and which are the same for his sons and daughters of faith? The promise of salvation, for one, being declared righteous by God, enjoying a covenant and intimate relationship with God, citizens of a heavenly kingdom that has foundations, whose architect and builder is God, and a great inheritance. James Boyce, in his commentary at Galatians at this point, draws a rather astute implication from this connection. He explains that, quote, since the blessing of Abraham is declared to have been intended for the Gentiles also, how could the Gentiles be blessed except by faith? To have been blessed in any other way would have involved their ceasing to be Gentiles, end quote. He certainly had a way of putting things. The solidarity between Abraham and all believing Gentiles is unmistakable. And the great salvation history of the Bible shows this solidarity in many ways, least of all the Abrahamic covenant. You and I are there. There's one people of God who exists and will be in heaven someday. And and one becomes part of them by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Paul will make the statement to this effect before chapter 3 comes to a close in verse 39. He says, and if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. We heard our scripture reading for this morning read so aptly in which Jesus confronts the Pharisees it's recorded in John 8 30 to 47 he confronts them because they are not true sons of Abraham even though they are his physical descendants rather Jesus said they are of their father the devil now how does he make that assessment well, it's by their fruits, really. They hate God's Messiah. They rejected his message. They wanted to kill him. This Abraham did not do. By the same token, Jesus says, of all those who are true children of Abraham, the one who is from God listens to God's words. This is why you don't listen, because you are not from God. Those are Jesus' words. And they are true today. Those of us here who claim to be of God, true spiritual sons and daughters of Abraham, maybe, maybe are, are real good at detecting and refuting the persuasive error that looms around us. Maybe we're real good at exposing the counterfeit, refu refusing to put our experiences on equal par with Scripture, and avoiding the works of the devil. But are we just as good as in listening to God's words. Listening, of course, is code for obeying. Maybe many of us only hear God's word but are slow to listen to it. 
maybe at times we like to listen to something else that suits our situation much better, or so we mistakenly believe. But hear this. If we stop listening to the words of God, the life-giving, life-sustaining scripture, we will find ourselves close to the top of that slippery slope where the Gentiles were. And we may wind up becoming the very thing that, that we pride ourselves on being so good at exposing. Let's make sure that we live by faith in God's sufficient word and rest in his grace.